The ancient mariner was prophetic when he said, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. And today we have a special segment on global health. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and our guest is Dr. James M. Hughes. Dr. Hughes is Professor of Medicine and Public Health at the Rollins School of Public Health, Emory University. He's also the director of the Emory Program of Global Infectious Disease and the director of the Emory Center for Global Safe Water. Thank you very much, Dr. Hughes, for joining us. Thank you very much. Could you tell me to begin with, what is the focus of the Emory Center for Global Safe Water? The Emory Center for Global Safe Water was established about five years ago with the generous support of Dr. Eugene Gangarosa. It is based in the Rollins School of Public Health. It has a focus on research and training and service. The primary opportunities that the center provides is for students in the School of Public Health who have the opportunity to work overseas in developing country environments, helping to assess, monitor, and evaluate programs that are designed to improve access to water, to improve sanitation, and to improve personal hygiene. Well, what are the global implications of not having potable water on the health in underdeveloped countries? Well, the global implications are quite severe. Water is essential to life, as as we know, and 70% of the human body weight, approximately, is water. So it's, it's very clear to all of us how essential water is. And it's not just available water. It's pure, safe drinking water as well. We think of the issue involving global safe water as really having three parts, access to a safe water supply, access to adequate sanitation facilities to ensure safe waste disposal, and then good personal hygiene, which requires water and soap. Do you feel at the present time that we're headed towards a water crisis? Well, now that's a complicated question. Certainly in the southeastern part of the United States today, we have a water crisis. We're in the midst of a very prolonged drought that is impacting people in Georgia, in Alabama, and in Florida in particular. And it's interesting in that it has led to controversy across borders about access to water. Further away, the real problem, though, is in the developing world, where it impacts on the poorest of the poor. And the the nature of the problem varies from setting to setting, but it involves, in some cases, lack of access to safe drinking water, and in other cases, lack of access to any water, as well as typically lack of access to adequate sewage disposal and often lack of access to soap for hand hygiene. To put it in its perspective, you hear numbers like 1 billion people do not have adequate water to drink and 2.5 billion people do not have adequate sanitation. What does this translate into as far as disease and numbers of death and especially among people who are under the age of five? Well, you're right to highlight the uh, children under the age of five because they are the ones that are primarily impacted by inadequate and unsafe water and inadequate sanitation and inadequate hygiene. They suffer from a range of water-related diseases, which may include diarrhea, skin infection, eye infection, trachoma being a good example of that, acute respiratory tract infections, and then some of the water-based 
and vector-borne diseases such as schistosomiasis and guinea worm on the one hand, malaria, dengue, and African trypanosomiasis on the other hand. So there is a broad range of water-related diseases. On the sanitation side, the problem is even more complicated because of the challenges posed by intestinal parasitic disease. Ascaris and hookworm and trichuris come to mind as examples. I think your article, August 21st, 2008, Talking Dirty, the Politics of Clean Water and Sanitation, that you wrote with Dr. Barry, kind of really puts this issue in its perspective and breaks down the various types of illnesses that water is involved in. And, you know, you touched on trachoma, which is a disease that supposedly 6 million people are blind, and all it takes is simple hand-washing. Do you think the United States is doing enough as far as third-world countries are concerned in this particular area? No, I think these problems that we're talking about are greatly underappreciated. Part of what we were trying to do was sensitize the medical and the public health community in this country to the nature and the scope and the severity of these problems. We are, interestingly, right now, right in the middle of the second international decade for water and sanitation. It's called Water for Life. There was a previous decade throughout the 1980s during which there was a focus around the world on improving water, sanitation, and hygiene, and limited progress was made. We're currently in the midst of the second water decade, one of the Millennium Development Goals, number seven, the goal that focuses on environmental sustainability, has targets for improving access around the world for people to safe water and adequate sanitation. Those targets are in place. Progress toward them is being monitored. There's some progress, but it's not going to, at the current rate, achieve the targets established for the year 2015. And the problem is most severe in sub-Saharan Africa, where there's, at the current rate, no chance of even approaching the targets. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and today we have a special segment on world global health, and our guest is Dr. James M. Hughes, who's professor of medicine and public health at the Emory University. Again, going back to this, I'd like to ask you, do you think that having water is actually a human right? Absolutely. It's, uh, not only is it a human right, it's essential to life as we know it. It's a global public good, and it's critical that the international community understand that and provide the support that is needed, both in terms of leadership and finances, to help address this global problem, which impacts predominantly the poorest of the poor around the world. The United States has had a Clean Water Act in 1972 and a Safe Drinking Water Act in 1974. This is certainly something in our own country we've been aware of. Again, why hasn't this information translated into a more aggressive pattern, especially are doctors doing enough? Well, doctors, I'm sure, in the developing world where this problem is most severe, wish they could do more about this because they see the ravages of these water-related diseases, particularly in children under five. But they are constrained in that they confront a broad range of illnesses in the populations that they care for. 
they have limited access to medications and other supplies that are needed. They have very limited access to diagnostic facilities. And so they have many, many things to worry about. Another interesting feature to this problem is that when you go into a developing country setting and you visit a Ministry of Health, they'll be aware of the disease impact of some of these water-related pathogens. But when you talk to them about water and sanitation issues, typically those are not the responsibility of the Ministry of Health. They fall under the Ministry of Water, the Ministry of the Environment. And so to really confront this problem, it requires a broad range of partnerships across disciplines and across organizational structures. And the impetus for that is often not present. Earlier, you mentioned guinea worm. There were 3.5 million cases a year of guinea worm just a decade ago, and we're now down to 9,000. Is this a success story that we can build on? You mentioned what it takes. What was so successful about the guinea worm success story, and how can it be transmitted into the other waterborne and water vector diseases? Well, that's an excellent question. The one thing for the audience to appreciate is that guinea worm is the only infectious disease that is exclusively transmitted by drinking water. There are many other enteric pathogens that are transmitted in some cases by contaminated water, but in other cases by contaminated food and in other cases by transmission from person to person. It happens, though, that guinea worm is the one that is only transmitted by contaminated drinking water. And it falls into the category of water-related diseases that people often refer to as water-breeding insect vector-related diseases. In fact, with guinea worm, the life cycle involves introduction of larvae into a surface water supply or a shallow well, and then propagation of the larvae to the infectious form in a microscopic organism that is present in the drinking water and then a subsequent consumption by susceptible people. So there are interventions that can be applied, but in terms of the major global focus now in the effort to make a guinea worm either the second or possibly the third infectious disease eradicated, smallpox being the first and polio being the other disease that's requiring a major focus now in terms of disease eradication, I think guinea worm is in well positioned to be number two or number three, in large part because of the political will that has been generated. And President Carter at the Carter Center here in Atlanta deserves tremendous credit for his leadership role in this in terms of galvanizing ministers of health and national leaders in guinea worm-affected countries to get them to appreciate this problem and to take it seriously. The leadership and the political will are fundamental to progress, and you can see, as your figures indicate, the, the dramatic progress that has been made, but there are still foci of transmission in northern Ghana and southern Sudan in particular that are requiring enhanced efforts. Answers in public health seem to be obvious, and you have to get people to buy into them. What can we do about this? Well, many answers are obvious, and some are less so. But behavioral change is critically important in this water-related disease area. And in fact, health education programs to target behavioral change are one of the components of the guinea worm control program. 
those need to be culturally appropriate and target the impacted population in a way that motivates them to change behaviors. One particular behavior that needs to be changed is to keep people who have active guinea worm disease with the worm emerging from the skin, typically in the lower extremities, away from surface water sources because if they go into the water sources they like to do because of the, the burning pain that the lesion results in, the larvae are then released by the worm and that kicks off the life cycle in the environment. I want to thank our guest, Dr. James M. Hughes, Professor of Medicine and Public Health at the Rollins School of Public Health, Emory University. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and you've been listening to a special segment on global health from ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at ReachMD.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening.